This week in the market, silver blasted to within earshot of 20, while U.S. shares posted a solid two-week rally. Well, welcome back to GoldSeek.com Radio, everyone. Your host, Chris Waltzek. Just a pleasure to rejoin you for this September 6th, Season 14, Episode 712. Well, the head of ShadowStats.com returns to the show with disruptive economic news. John Williams is forecasting a solvency crisis if our long-term obligations continue to accumulate. He thinks $80 trillion is required to keep the entire house of cards. That's approximately five years of everything produced in the United States, including corporations and individuals, we the people. We also discussed the potential for perpetual quantitative easing. The Fed is now on track to lower rates for the third month in a row this month in just about 10, 11 days, where we'll see the rates drop to about 175 to 200 basis points. And we also discussed the potential for a Fexit exiting the Fed system as a potential that might be proposed by our policymakers. And as you might expect, Shadow Stats and Gold Seat concur. The best panacea remains the precious metals. In part two, with Arch Crawford, head of Crawford Perspectives for over 40 years, he notes he's watching the crude oil market closely, and he's also watching the precious metals sector with considerable interest on the lower interest rate theme. Robert Ian returns to the show with his latest must-hear report. And for my Alpha Stocks newsletter subscribers, you may have seen that Platinum soared nearly another 10%, up almost 20% in just two weeks after we called for a big rally there. Didn't expect that much quite so quickly, but it did briefly top over a $1,000 on Platinum this week. If you haven't yet signed up, we're still offering the newsletter with zero risk if after 30 days you're not satisfied. Your annual subscription is completely refunded. So if you've been on the sidelines, be sure and sign up. You can do so with your PayPal account. The Q&A hotline, 641-715-3900. We'd like to hear from you. Questions and comments, you can call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and you'll need the mailbox number, 5140-49. You can call in, 641-715-3900. We may have a big surprise, nearly hour-long conference call this weekend added to this show. I should know within about the next 24 hours if the top brass at Goldseek approved, I'll give you a hint. It does involve Andrew McGuire, a top gold analyst. So stay tuned and check back in with me this weekend. Goldseek.com radio begins now with a market weather recap. Visibility was virtually unlimited over the precious metals sector for the 15th consecutive week. With both metals up approximately 20%, give or take, this year already. At Friday's closing bell, the yellow metal finished off just less than 1%, still above 15 15 Silver, though, blasted to within earshot of 
$20, closing at $18.12. The XAU precious metals shares were off, though, about $4.70 as investors took some of those profits off the table. Still ended near 94 after coming with also with an earshot of 100. Palladium, though, was near break even around 1545, but it was platinum that added $27, 3%, finishing near 960. Well, the precious metals continued the impressive rally this week with silver touching a three-year record on news that the world's two largest trading partners agreed to a fresh round of negotiations next month. Investors viewed this news as trade-friendly, adding to the potential for silver, which benefits from industrial demand. In addition, better-than-expected unemployment figures encouraged investors on the domestic front, another chief source of silver demand. Negotiators from Washington and Beijing are slated to meet early next month to discuss the tariff dilemma that has had some analysts increasingly concerned about the potential for a global recession. However, keep in mind the central banks are now working in unison to lower rates to encourage economic conditions. Meanwhile, the FOMC is slated to meet in about two weeks on September 17th and 18th, with the probabilities now at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange indicating better than even odds of a third back-to-back monthly rate cut from the current 200 to 225 basis points level down to the 175-200 basis points range at the next meeting. This, of course, increases liquidity within the system, which is inflationary, and that boosts demand for the metals. Analysts from several top financial institutions are calling for higher prices, including 1560 in 2020, according to BNP Paribas, as well as MarketWatch. Gold could surge above 1600, noted the report, and chief analyst at TF Global Markets also said 1600 is a very doable target. He's calling for it as soon as the next few weeks. Bottom line on precious metals. Clearly, the big story this week was the epic silver run to nearly 20. Finally has put some downward pressure on that gold to silver ratio. Maybe even changed the trend of the gold to silver ratio, which over long periods could bode very well for AG investors, as that clear mispricing between gold and silver continues to resolve itself. The gold to silver ratio finally broke free from that 90-ish range that lasted for about three months, making the odds for, I think, the 20 and higher, more plausible. Regarding the precious metal sector as a whole, although momentum is clearly overstretched here, I agree with Mark Mobius of Templeton Funds that years of lackluster interest in the sector just really makes it a solid long-term hold for every portfolio. Moving on to the Wall Street Report, sunny sky remained over the New York Stock Exchange for the second week running as investors poured more funds into U.S. and global shares amid the new rate-cutting cycle and the potential for positive negotiations at the upcoming tariff talks. By Friday's closing bell on Wednesday on Wall Street, the Dow added 400, about 1.5% at 26,800. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 added 52, 3% at 2980, while the Nasdaq added 140, ending at 8103. The top story moving the market stronger domestic economic numbers encouraged investors on the heels of news that the nation's businesses created 195,000 private sector jobs in August. This, according to ADP, about 45,000 better than expected on Thursday. 
Plus, the U.S. government data showed the number of people who applied for unemployment benefits in the week of August was mostly benign. Also viewed as a positive sign, the Federal Reserve's Beige Book number, a review of the domestic economy, showed economic expansion was somewhat steady, but that was slightly offset, I think, by arbitrary news in the U.S. from the Institute of Supply Management Manufacturing on Tuesday, which showed the number their number dropped to 49.1%. That's well off the 51.2%. And, of course, readings below 50 are viewed as potentially recessionary. So we kind of have a mixed bag there. U.S. shares, bottom line. Despite the solid rally in the Friday's close, another favorite indicator, the Fear to Greed Index, continues to remain in the very fearful category. Now, this is just the opposite of what you'd expect if we were in a toppy situation because, frankly, investors remain very nervous right now, even though prices are going up sharply. That does not show over enthusiasm. In fact, I think it indicates the potential for maybe even higher highs in the coming weeks. So despite really the continued chorus of naysayers out there who refuse to believe shares can move higher, I maintain our position that the pro-business attitude, you know, from Washington and the accommodative dovish Fed and their colleagues really supports, I think, our thesis for the potential of $10,000 NASDAQ, maybe 4,000 S&P, and maybe even 30,000 Dow Jones Industrials. Coming up after the break, more GoldSeek.com radio. Thanks for choosing GoldSeek.com radio as a trusted business and investing news source. It's a pleasure to welcome John Williams back to the show. He's an alternative economist who helps guide investors in the right direction. He's head of Shadow Stats, an alternative economic source. Welcome back, John Williams. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's great to have you here. And, you know, a lot going on since our last discussion on GoldSeek.com radio. Clearly, we've entered a rate cut cycle, and that seems to bode well for the Shadow Stats thesis of potential runaway inflation. Tell us more, please. The problem with the United States and its uh, fiscal operations is that it is not uh, long-term fiscally solvent. The government knows it. It publishes uh, detail on that uh, every year. Uh, available now if you uh, go to the U.S. Treasury's website and because uh, uh, it's fiscal, fiscal management and you can get a copy of the uh, uh, Financial statements for the U.S. government for last year, fiscal year ended. Uh, we don't have the 19 out yet. That's uh, that doesn't come till uh, January of next year. But what it shows there, and uh, not, not only did the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin uh, indicate it, but uh, a little earlier uh, you had a similar indication from Fed Chairman Powell that current U.S. fiscal conditions are not sustainable. Very simply, not sustainable. With word, words. That both of them used, and in, in Mnuchin's comments, it was in his opening opening comments to the uh, financial statements. The circumstance uh, is such that uh, the United States cannot continue as it's currently moving. Uh, it needs to bring its long-term uh, balance sheet into balance, long-term uh, finances uh, into into some semblance of uh, solvency. The circumstances are just just getting worse. If you look at the last financial statement published by the U.S. Treasury, it's, it's prepared by the GAO, which used to be the uh, 
uh, General Accounting Office, and they, for some reason, changed it to the Government Accountability Office. I guess they didn't want to pretend to be uh, accountants, but they really are. And they, they do a pretty good job in putting numbers together. One thing they include in the financial statement, they, they, they value uh, assets and liabilities, including uh, uh, real estate, I mean, the, whatever the value uh, uh, for the uh, they've got on the books for the uh, the uh, Congress uh, congressional buildings, the White House. That's all in there as assets. But they also have as liabilities, which is where we run into trouble. Uh, the unfunded liabilities for uh, Social Security and Medicare. What they do is they work out a uh, uh, through a formula process what the uh, and net present value of those unfunded liabilities are. I mean, it's a net present value. That's what what amount of cash do you need in hand today to cover those liabilities. And in terms of uh, Medicare and Social Security, which are the biggest biggest problem areas in the long-term solvency concerns of the U.S., you're looking at something like $80 trillion that's needed in hand today to uh, have the system solvent. Putting that in perspective, the total amount of Current Treasury debt outstanding is a little over $20 trillion. Uh, there's just no way that we can conceivably uh, cover that. The, um, I mean, to do so requires restructuring Medicare, Social Security, uh, with a, some kind of a, a significant increase in revenues over time and reduction in outlays in what people are expecting to get out of, get, get benefits. Out of that. If it's if it's to be brought into balance, my contention is that there's just no political will in Washington whatsoever to do that now. The problem there is that if you don't, eventually uh, the, the 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 country becomes uh, becomes bankrupt. Uh, it is effectively so now. If you uh, if you look at those financial statements, it's, the, the system is not not sustainable. Uh, if you go back a couple of years. It was 2009-2010 that uh, Standard & Poor's downgraded the U.S. Treasuries. It took them off their AAA notch, and that, that is, for a long time, up until that point in time, the U.S. Treasuries were considered the benchmark risk-free uh, security. The reason they lowered the, uh, the rating was not due to the long-term Insolvency outlook for the government. What few people understand is that those ratings usually signify only the risk is as the rating agencies are viewing it in the year ahead. So if the um, if a rating agency sees no risk of of default in the next year, usually they they'd give you a um, a AAA rating, and I'm talking zero zero risk. And where that was the case in 2009, there was a an argument in Congress over funding, and some people were suggesting that there, maybe they'd force a default to try and bring public attention to it. And as soon as they mentioned the word default, that took the risk of default away from zero, and uh, Standard and Poor's had to uh, had to downgrade. But the, at the time, and the reason I'm, I'm mentioning this is that uh, Alan Greenspan, Alan Greenspan, made a very astute observation. Uh, which really shows you where we're heading here. Uh, he noted that the risk of def- the U.S. defaulting on its debt, meaning that it, would, it couldn't def- uh, it wouldn't make a payment on its debt, 
was absolutely zero because uh, all the money that the uh, U.S. owes is, um, is denominated in dollars and that we can print whatever dollars we want to print. And there he's, he's generally correct. And um, uh, printing dollars, uh, debasing a currency is uh, is not a, usually in a, an area of default on, uh, on government bonds and such. So um, when he said we just we print whatever money we need, um, that gives you a pretty good idea as to, I think, where we're heading until uh, uh, we get into a financial crisis that really scares people. Because increasingly they're going to say, we can, well, look, we'll just print the dollars. And, uh, you know, where you've heard that is uh, been in, uh, with other countries ranging from Venezuela to Zimbabwe to um, what uh, the Weimar Republic in Germany uh, had to go through. Uh, you can't raise the money, you, you print it. And with that, you get inflation and you, you, you print too much, uh, which it begins to accelerate when you're in a, uh, a non-solvent uh, circumstance. You end up with a hyperinflation. If we pursue the course that the Greenspan says the U.S. can always, always follow, um, you end up with a hyperinflation. Your currency becomes worthless. And the traditional hedge against uh, hyperinflation and or hyperinflation in, a, in the extreme case uh, has been the uh, precious metals, gold and silver. And it's still my position that the best bet for anyone looking to uh, um, hedge their wealth and assets and maintain the long-term purchasing power of their wealth and assets is to put it into uh, uh, the, the physical precious metals, gold and silver, particularly gold, and in the uh, in the process, uh, hold that over time. You, you, you'll see a lot of volatilities we've seen in the last couple of years. Right now, gold is uh, uh, in an upswing, and I think generally it's going to continue an upswing as the dollar continuously uh, gets debased here. But there's uh, banks and central banks and governments can do all sorts of things to, to knock the gold price around. So you want to have enough liquidity to not be forced to sell, sell out at a low price with the uh, gold or silver. But I think over the long term, you'll find holding those precious metals will preserve the purchasing power of your wealth and assets the best of anything that's out there. Very good. Well, you know, you mentioned Zimbabwe as well as Europe, and a couple of interesting notes here. We were reviewing uh, the current situation in Zimbabwe, and even after the revaluation following the massive hyperinflation there, it still approximately requires about half a million at last check Zimbabwe dollars to purchase or procure one ounce of gold. If we move across the Atlantic to Venezuela, Venezuela peso was approximately one-to-one. Uh, with the dollar about a decade or so, a few years ago. So it just illustrates how, you know, the gem of uh, South America see its strong currency evaporate. Well, the, uh, in, in the case of Zimbabwe, that, that's a real bargain on the, on the Zimbabwe dollar there, but they've been through revaluations. And at one point, it, uh, I mean, one, one, one U.S. dollar, I think, was worth uh, quadrillions. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it just got so far out of whack. They, I think, they had to re uh, they reset the uh, the number of zeros. Yeah, that's the that's the general uh, area in, 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 into which we're into which we're going, unless there's some way of uh, containing the, uh, the, the the fiscal crisis. And it might maybe uh, as it uh, you get a panic and uh, the government will finally be 
be forced into action, but it's not going to be an easy time uh, for anyone and not going to be a happy time for anyone. Um, and again, holding the, uh, rather than betting on the, uh, the, 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 the uh, prudent fiscal behavior by uh, Washington's uh, politicians, which I don't think is a real good bet, you hold, hold the physical uh, metal, you've, uh, you've bought yourself some insurance there that uh, means you don't have to worry about them. And uh, it's just, uh, well, I mean, you, you, you look at it. Uh, do you see a chance here that uh, these guys in Washington will uh, bring the budget into balance when they just widened it, uh, decided to open the borrowing spigots and shut down the uh, uh, what had been uh, a debt limit where some people were trying to contain the uh, well, not to mention the executive branch now uh, apparently has just, I don't know, merged with the Federal Reserve. And it appears as though the executive branch has the authority to tell the Federal Reserve how much money to print and which direction interest rates. Well, their executive branch has been trying. That doesn't mean that they've successfully merged. That remains to be seen. Uh, I don't like that. I don't like the uh, situation with the Fed at all, frankly. I be just as happy if uh, we didn't have the Fed. They're not operating in the interest of the, the U.S. public. I'd like to investigate that further, if you don't mind. We in the gold crowd have been pounding the table for that for decades. Nevertheless, I do think there should be some discussion and some dialogue on the most prudent way to do this if it were to occur. There should be a transition between a Federal Reserve-controlled national economy and a freer treasury-run economy. I think you find it'll take an act of Congress to change the Fed. Um, it's not they don't serve by the pleasure of the president. The president gets to nominate the uh, governors, and um, they, they get approved by the, uh, the Senate. Uh, but the, uh, the the Fed is. Uh, is, is not does not serve at the pleasure of the president, and it's not structured uh, as a uh, as an executive branch agency. It is uh, separate. It was established by a separate act of Congress. Um, now, the uh, where we've got problems with the, the the Fed and what they've been doing is that it is owned by the banking system, and what they did in uh, with the banking collapse in uh, two thousand. Uh, seven, 2008, I think was criminal. They should have let the banks uh, fail, or let, you know, at least those that were not salvageable. And uh, then, uh, and so the, the the bank people on the banks would take the uh, the hit, not the uh, American public. They used the the public funds to bail out the uh, to bail out the banks, and um, it was uh, at the and but <laughs> and what they did there, um, they they bought all the the, the, the treasuries and the mortgage-backed securities out of the banks um, and then made the banks uh, put that cash back with them on deposit and uh, as excess reserves. And then the, then the Fed paid the banks interest on that. So that they kept the banks afloat. They took all the bad debt off their, um, off their uh, balance sheet. In the process, the uh, Fed did nothing to stimulate the economy, which is driven into recession by the... Uh, uh, really criminal contact, uh, uh, conduct of a, of a lot of the banks with uh, fraudulent lending. 
Uh, I saw a lot of what went on there, and a number of people should have gone to jail. Uh, Nobody did, that I'm aware. But in the process, what the Fed did was it did everything it could to keep the banking system afloat uh, without much concern about what it did to help the the general public. Uh, For example, uh, if in the process here the Fed had allowed the banks to lend more money into into the uh, population, you would have had you would have had a much uh, better economic recovery. We never had a full economic recovery. Average guy still hasn't uh, seen it on Main Street USA in their industries, such as uh, manufacturing, uh, construction, uh, for, for example, but uh, never have recovered their pre-recession uh, peak activity, their pre-Great Recession peak activity. I mean, manufacturing still shy of 5% uh, or so, uh, uh, Construction, housing sectors uh, shy 20 to 50 percent of recovering its pre-recession peak. Um, the, the Main Street USA generally has never recovered pre-recession peak activity, and that's what's considered economic expansion, as it's defined. Um, you know, you have a recession; the economy turns down, then it uh, hits bottom, which is your trough, and then you head higher, and that's recovery until you uh, hit your pre-recession high. And then as you move beyond your pre-recession high, that's considered economic expansion. Uh, what happened here in many areas was that the you, you crashed, the economy crashed, you had a trough and you had some recovery, but um, you never reached pre-recession high in a number of important areas. And as such, uh, we, we've, we've been through a decade of almost, a record decade of non-economic expansion in areas such as, such as manufacturing. And a lot of that has to do with the way the Fed targeted the, re- the recovery and the salvation of the banking system at the cost of broad economic activity. If they'd let the banking system fail, it would have been painful. Uh, a lot of things would have happened. I think the, the, I think the government still would have guaranteed deposits, and there would have been sorts of all re- reorganization in it, maybe even the Federal Reserve. But I would bet you as a result we'd see a much stronger economy today than we, uh, than we have now. And uh, President Trump is absolutely right in blaming the Fed for where the economy is right now, and the Fed should be cutting rates to stimulate the economy. The Fed talks about having, oh, we have to, we want to target inflation and full uh, full employment. But both those numbers are nonsense. They've, been, they've redefined those some years ago, and they play all sorts of games and reporting of it. You see it in some areas, but you don't have a broad-based economic recovery here that's happily advertised. Um, by the uh, by, the Fed and Wall Street, it's just not there. That's that's why Trump got elected. People were looking for a, a big change. I mean, if, if you talk that oh, economy's rebounding, and people may parrot that because they heard it in the press. But when it comes to voting, vote for pocketbooks. If they're not enjoying an economic rebound, they're not going to vote for the uh, incumbent. And that's why that's why Trump uh, shocked the system by getting elected because the average guy. Really was not uh, not feeling the recovery. I mean, the headline numbers were there. According to the headline numbers, Hillary Clinton should have been uh, should have been elected. The incumbent party should have stayed in power, but it didn't. And that's uh, that's the magic of economic reality and how people are really feeling and uh, voting the pocketbook. And I don't know how that's going to go this next time round. You've got all sorts of strange forces at work, but uh, the weakness in the economy that we're seeing today. Uh, still had its roots 
back in that uh, banking fiasco and the way the Fed has handled things. And uh, I think the public's more likely to blame the Fed than uh, Donald Trump in this. I don't. I don't think he's. Uh, I think he's probably going to do a lot better in the election than his opponents would would advertise. Of course, we've had two back-to-back rate cuts. The Fed funds futures at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange also indicate that traders are looking for another rate cut, probably to around 175 to 200 basis points on their overnight lending rate, according to the St. Louis Fed as well. Can you give us an idea then on the implications of three monthly back-to-back rate cuts? This seems almost unprecedented, and uh, that would seem supportive for the current administration as well as the economy, um, not so much for the U.S. dollar. Well, well the Fed just gave us a five back-to-back uh, rate hikes. That was aimed at um, basically slowing down the economy and trying to dump uh, assets they didn't want to, want to hold and, uh, again, to get uh, boost interest rates to help the banking system. Marginally reversing that, and you have to consider that whenever the Fed tightens or loosens, that you have about nine months until you start to see the impact on the economy. You go back to December of uh, 2017, they skipped a quarter there on the rate hike, but starting with uh, uh, December of 2017, you had five quarters in a row of a quarter-point rate hike that effectively doubled uh, the Fed funds rate, and it was squeezed consumer liquidity and triggered or exacerbated the the, the current downturn. We're actually heading into a a headline recession, as as they'll show it. Again, the Fed was not too concerned about that as it was... Again, trying to get the banking system back to normal, that's its primary function in life. So when Trump raised the questions on it, he, he, he was legitimate. He's got, uh, he, he's got some uh, fair arguments here, and you've got some unusual politics going on there. We had the former vice chair suggesting that the Fed uh, take action to try and uh, discourage Trump's re-election. I mean, the Fed's supposed to be politically neutral. Uh, other presidents have talked about the Fed and what they'd like to see. It's matter of not whether or not the Fed itself is neutral. I don't think they exactly have been. In terms of the uh, uh, significance, we, we never recovered from the banking system crash in 2007 in terms of, of a full economic, full economic health. And uh, I think what you've got ahead here is uh, not only continued easing to try and pop the economy, but I think you're going to see the Fed uh, moving back towards uh, quantitative easing. Uh, they and this, uh, when they dropped the uh, uh, rates in, uh, in in June, they also uh, dropped the rates. They also uh, ended early their asset liquidation of all the uh, bad, uh, supposedly bad that they they brought up from the banks. What that did is it allows them to resume uh, quantitative easing. I think we're going to go back to quantitative easing here. I think we're going to see perpetual quantitative easing. And I think you're going to have an ongoing problem here till the system uh, collapses either in a hyperinflation or they somehow uh, people look to reorganize the, uh, the the currency system without the Federal Reserve. I mean, if you take a look at 2007, 2008, the Great Recession, they referred to it, that big credit crisis, and fast forward to today, it still required roughly an additional $3 trillion remaining on the Fed's balance sheet, as I know you're very well aware. So we still have well over three and a half trillion dollars. So in other words, they never cleared the slate, which you alluded to. Have there also includes mortgage-backed securities, which are toxic. They're never going to get. We're going to go to the. That's really much more of a hindrance than just everyday debt. 
I mean, even if it were just low-cost debt, if you're familiar with the fact that it's toxic, it's an Achilles heel. If we move forward, obviously uh, we've seen the precious metals market um, respond to extreme undervaluation for many years. It's responding to a new lower rate cycle, as well as some concern over this tariff trade war. You've talked a little bit about the potential for a Smoot-Hawley-like situation, but the parallels don't really seem to hold. Would you like to make any comparisons? Those are all areas that affected uh, a lot of a lot of workers. You have to go back to NAFTA here, because when the when we entered into NAFTA, the idea that was being put forth was that um, we're we're going to be part of a, a movement in the uh, world the economy here, where the, the North, uh, the, the American uh, uh, major the major countries would bind in a uh, trade union as uh, Europeans did. This was back in '94. You had Maastricht Treaty, you had NAFTA, um, and this is um, with people looking to effectively merge the countries and move towards a one-world government. The problem there is that if you're looking to, to merge economies to uh, make um, uh, wealth and income a little more stable as you look around the world. Um, what happens there, the guy that's on the top of the heap making the most is going to get knocked down, and the guy on the bottom presumably will be elevated some. Well, the United States was on top of the heap. Obviously, we're going to take a hit on that. We're going to see uh, a lot of uh, production move offshore, which it did. Uh, we see a lot of production jobs be lost, which 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 were lost. Uh, and that was the specific design of the people who put, put this uh, NAFTA into play. And Mr. Trump, the, uh, Mr. the President, has been, um, at least he's been trying to renegotiate, uh, or has renegotiated NAFTA, whether or not you like what he's done, or whether or not what's been negotiated is ever going to be finally approved. At least he, he, he's done something there. There were two things that happened at the time. One, they redefined the way they counted unemployment. And, uh, well, the headline unemployment rate that's down around Seven, three, eight percent right now. It wasn't changed much, uh, more in the surveying, but what they had in place uh, earlier and still have in place to a certain extent was a way of measuring uh, broader unemployment. The headline unemployment, you have to be out there looking right now in this last month in order to, f- to find work. And if you haven't looked in the last month for work, they won't, they won't count you as unemployed. Um, if, however, you want a job, and you're, uh, you're, you're not looking right now because there are no jobs to be had. They'll count you as a, what they call a discouraged worker in a, in a broader unemployment measure. Uh, but they'll only count you for a year. Back before 1994, before the institution of NAFTA, they'd count you as a discouraged worker as long as you were discouraged. Um, after that, you were just defined out of, uh, defined out of existence. And the reason they did that very simply was because they knew with NAFTA uh, there was going to be a lot of displacement of workers. So they wanted to keep the, the broad unemployment rate down. That's why I, I published an estimate of where the numbers would be had, if they had not done that. And I've got it up around uh, 20% where the, uh, the, headline num- the headline unemployment, the one with people who are not worried about being discouraged, is you know, under, under 4%. But with the discouraged workers as they have it, that's up around 8%. So I'm, I'm 
I'm almost uh, I'm two and a half, three times the the, the, the level of uh, what they're reporting is the broadly uh, uh, discouraged worker. The problem here is that the where that people were unemployed. That was something that uh, again was the reason why Trump got elected. And uh, so, aside from looking at uh, NAFTA, a part of that has to do with uh, the, the, the general uh, trade deficit and uh, issues with China, where a lot of manufacturing has been lost offshore. And I'm, what I'm assuming here, I don't have direct communication. I'm just what I'm reading between the lines is very simply what's being done here is a negotiation uh, with China in terms of uh, trying to uh, realign the uh, trade balance and the, the way trade is handled between the U.S. And, and China. It's all been moving in one direction, and the tariffs are used as a tool to uh, try and start negotiations. At least that's how, how I view it. So I don't see this as being any, anything that's permanent. It's just part of a negotiating process. We're reading numbers from the Federal Reserve itself that, you know, the typical American has less than 500 to to $1,000 in savings. The precious metals are becoming increasingly difficult to procure, and it doesn't sound like a very savory world for even, uh, you know, an individual with a treasure chest filled with gold doubloons if everyone else in the neighborhood is scrounging to put bread on the table. Do you see a solution here? What's the panacea? The solution is that the uh, government take action to bring its uh, house into fiscal order, into fiscal balance. If it does that, it can uh, have stable economic growth over time and uh, long-term prosperity. There will be business cycles, but you're not going to have great recessions and economic collapses as we have had. The problem is that there's no one willing to approach that at present in the government. Uh, nothing, no one I've seen. I mean, there's, been, there's been some talk, but all the action has been in the other direction. If the if action is not taken to bring the U.S. Uh, fiscal condition into balance, you're going to have a hyperinflation and uh, all the stuff that goes with that. I wish it were otherwise, but that's the way our, polit- our political system has has been run, and it's been run that way for decades, for decades, borrowing from the future. Let's take a look at the last major reserve currency before the U.S. dollar. Of course, the pound sterling is one that comes to mind. Can you not make the case that the reserve currency has, let's call it, special status. It has some abilities to sustain due to our military strength and and other strategic resources. Can you give us a world where our bond market can't sustain the inflation and where the U.S. equities market can't absorb it and the Fed has lost the ability to contain the inflation genie? Well, the thing is the uh, bond market can uh, absorb the uh, hyperinflation with higher interest rates. stock market could go through the roof. Uh, with, in, with inflation. It's how it is net of inflation. And the uh, the, the problem there is that uh, when you have the inflation, the average guy is going to find that his, uh, all of a sudden the money that he had that used to buy groceries isn't buying groceries. Uh, it's, it's become worthless. And uh, if you go look in, um, so they're very similar stories between Weimar Republic of, of Germany and um, uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, I knew people who went lived through the Weimar Republic and said, you know, that the the currency became worth more as uh, papering walls or using as a toilet tissue 
There are many new listeners and younger folks listening to us today. It might be difficult to wrap minds around it. Can you give us an idea? I mean, if we take a look at what happened in Poland, but look what happened in Greece and Cyprus, investors and sometimes even savings account and checking account holders can wake up to a 50% or more haircut in their accounts. Might we see something parallel that in the U.S. dollar, a very quick adjustment? Well, that's, a, that's always a possibility. Let me put it this way. Once the process starts, the matter of speed, the only reason you'd, you'd want to uh, do something like that would be if you had a way of trying to contain it. Uh, I don't see any way they can practically contain this uh, other than uh, you know, start, start with a fresh currency or something like that. They have to, the government has to find a way of balancing things out here, and if it can't balance things out, then things such as Social Security and uh, Medicare will go by the wayside. They, they, they just can't pay for it. It'll be worthless. There's nothing much you can, you can do with it. People will move away from the dollar. It will lose its uh, it will lose its value as a as a currency reserve currency uh, a reserve currency that is uh, in hyperinflation and does not stay a reserve currency for long. Look at Zimbabwe. There they they would use dollars as a reserve currency. I mean they they, they would they they would treat dollars as they would gold. When it gets to the point that your reserve currency uh, is in a hyperinflation, and if you look at the debt that we have here, uh, what well, has to be paid out over time, I can't tell you when the crisis here is going to break, but ultimately it is going to. There's no there's no way out of it unless the government can balance its books, and politically that's not that's not possible at the moment. Uh, so that if you're holding your, if you back up your, what you're holding in assets with some gold, you don't have to have all your money in gold or silver. Anything that you have there will be a plus against what's 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 going to happen here. Just uh, and you keep in mind that values can be knocked up and down by intervention. So you have to have liquidity outside of the out of the uh, the, the precious metals. But holding that over time likely will uh, will save you. If I if I saw a way out of it, otherwise, I mean I can't tell you the way out of it. Government government's got to uh, behave itself and bring its uh, finances into balance, and I just don't see that as a possibility. Can you give us your most conservative estimate on how this might play out? Meaning that we're going to just assume this isn't quite Weimar, it's not quite Venezuela or or Zimbabwe yet, or Argentina style currency crisis, but nevertheless, we're still facing one. If you were going to make it as palatable as possible, sugarcoated as much as you could, can you give us a play-by-play on how this could all come to pass? If they have a solution, they should be pushing it now because it gets more difficult down the road. They, they don't have a solution. I think maybe they're hoping they can hold it off for an extended period of time. But again, that can vary all over the place because it's not just the U.S. consumers. It's the global consumers, people holding U.S. dollars. If the rest of the world decides to dump the dollar, that, that could trigger your crisis. I have a parent who's in, let's just say, 80s, a senior citizen, several friends and acquaintances. And, you know, it's a little alarming to hear yours and, of course, Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff, a, a really good friend of the show here as well, parallel your thoughts. You know, these systems that we've come to rely on so heavily in retirement are clearly insolvent and may not be sustainable for, let's say, the folks in their middle age. But for our parents, do you see any panacea there? There 
are some ways out for the ind- individual. It's not relying on uh, not relying on the government. The, the chances of the government working this out are virtually nil. It's just a matter of uh, of how it of how it breaks. You know, as we see EU struggle to hold itself together, the economic ministers there clearly don't quite have the, let's say, unifying power as our Federal Reserve because we have 12 regional banks uh, that are, of course, held together by loosely by the Federal Reserve. But nevertheless, how much of our hegemony as a nation might be disrupted were the Federal Reserve to lose the reins of the money supply in other words, might this uh, lead to civil unrest like we haven't seen in 150 years? Very easily. This does not, not have a happy ending. And what, what you need to keep in mind here is that the once a genie's out of the bag, so to speak, we're at that break. I mean, if there is a chance they can bring things under control now, it means austerity. It means unpopular things uh, like maybe uh, raising Social Security taxes or cutting back uh, benefits. Uh, but they can be done, and, and, and the system still can be salvaged. But what you need to do, and this is just something that you can do in the background, live a little easier with yourself. I estimate uh, inflation the way it used to be before the government started playing around with its calculation back in the 1980s, where they changed methodologies deliberately to understate the headline inflation so they didn't have to pay out as much in uh, a course of living adjustments on Social Security. Very openly, uh, but if you look at the what's actually what's the way inflation used to be viewed back in the, the 1980s, which was basically, what do I need today to maintain a constant standard of living? That's the way it used to be defined. It no longer is. Alan Greenspan redefined that as well. Look, um, steak gets uh, too expensive. People buy more chicken, so we'll, we'll we'll try and make it do it on a substitution basis. So they're still getting something to eat, but they're you're not maintaining the constant standards of living. If you use my numbers, and if you look at gold, and you look at the headline CPIU inflation, plot gold, you can take gold back to, and, and uh, inflation, back to the 16, uh, 1665 in New Amsterdam, now New York City, and you plot those together over time, the gold and the gold price and inflation pretty much stay together because of where we are now. It's pretty flat up until about 1900 on a relative basis. Then the Fed comes in uh, 1914. You start to see a little bit of a pickup in both the the inflation rate and and, and gold. Then you get to the uh, 30s and uh, Roosevelt bans the ownership of domestic gold, and you see a little more of a uh, an uptick there, both in gold and inflation. Uh, then Nixon um, abandons the gold standard in uh, 71 or two. All of a sudden, you really start to see both inflation and gold starting to pick up. And as the inflation picks up, that's when the government starts to redefine its inflation measure, taking uh, out things that uh, make the inflation higher than they like, so that they artificially are depressing the inflation. But guess what? If you take my number, and I discovered this accidentally, this is not a deliberate effort to try and uh, match things, I found when I plotted them together that my measure as the way inflation used to be calculated keeps up with gold. If you look at, if you just plot gold against the current CPI inflation, the gold starts taking off exponentially after 1980, uh, where the, uh, the the inflation sort of tapers off and it's nice and under control. That's all definitional on inflation. If you look at the original CPI inflation, gold still covers it. The original CPI definition, gold covers it.
put some money into gold, physical gold, hold it, forget about it. When you, when you need it, you'll have it there, and it will, you'll find that it will tend to have maintained its purchasing power over time. That's the best bet I can give you, that the, you want to maintain the purchasing power of your current assets, current income. John Williams, please tell people more about your new information and updates, as well as what they'll find at shadowstats.com. I publish uh, newsletters uh, for subscribers, and on my website I have uh, a daily update page that gives you headline uh, detail on the, the numbers as, as they get published and where you occasionally get some unusual twist. I always look for the unusual twist. I contend right now that the uh, GDP is uh, the GDP growth is being significantly overstated and the economy is a lot weaker than the Fed's recognizing. You'll see that material on my site, some rationale behind that. We're seeing a lot of evidence that what, what I'm talking about is, is beginning to surface. Had weak economic growth to the other factors. Again, it does nothing to improve the uh, outlook as to what, we're, what we've been discussing. So, uh, shadowstats.com, www.shadowstats.com. That gives you my, my homepage and the current update. You can uh, find alternate measures of inflation and unemployment. And, of course, we always welcome new subscribers and you find details there, shadowstats.com. Very good. John Williams, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Chris. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology vault chain gold and silver are 100 redeemable through one gold for physical precious metals delivered to customers doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs as a special offer and for a limited time only one gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums one gold.com is secure and accessible 24 7 on any device offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember, OneGold. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. Goldseek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24 karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit 
with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. But sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to May's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, many jewelry. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Thanks for choosing Goldseek.com radio as a trusted business and investing news source. Okay, let's take a look then at West Texas Intermediate Crude. Any thoughts there? Yes, somewhat definitely a declining 200-day moving average. Broken the important trend line a couple of times, but it hasn't followed through on the downside yet. So it's getting into a triangular pattern with the 50-day and 200-day moving averages coming down on top and that trend line rising up across bottom. So it's got to make a play, uh, a technical breakout, uh, either up or down, and I don't know, it didn't last more than another uh, week, week and a half at the most, I would say. But it could do it any minute <laughs> that it breaks above uh, 56 and a half or so, or below uh, three quarters, something like that. So if it breaks, up or down, it would signify that that direction is becoming more significant. The other very significant trend is uh, lower interest rates around the world, and that's making the gold more valuable because it doesn't pay anything. And if uh, if uh, what is it, fourteen to sixteen trillion dollars worth of bonds around the world are now negative. You have to pay them to keep it. You know, you do need to store your gold safely, but it does entail that slight expense. So there's a slight negative storage and safety premium. There's an opportunity cost that we as economists refer to it as. So, you know, you could be earning, as you say, that negative interest rate. But there, there are still a few places, aren't there, Arch, where you can earn half a percent to a percent or two or three percent on Coca-Cola or Microsoft or the Dow carries roughly a two percent interest rate. But then you're saying, yes, but look at what you've had to chase to accept that tiny amount of interest. OK, well, Arch, can you tell folks a little bit more about your services? newsletter talking about uh, the general market indices and the oil interest rate, which are still collapsing. We've had that going now 42 years over the last day. We've, got, we've been number one in various markets over that time period. Two, we've uh, had a significant record correct prediction. Of course, nobody is perfect in this business. Time and specific 
I mean, we predicted the date that the Challenger exploded, the date that Diana died, the date that within three days of when the Chernobyl blew up, and three days from when the United States went to war after 9-11. Thanks so much, Arch. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. Goldseek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24-karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. With sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, Many Jewelry. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. This is Robert Ian with Goldseek.com Radio. There are certain business practices that are employed by some organizations that are downright annoying. They are often used to keep the consumer off guard, and in many cases are structured that way to serve as a profit center. 
charging what turns out to be users' rates of interest for otherwise everyday services. Critics of what I'm about to say will dismiss these examples by saying problems of this sort can be resolved simply by having the consumer place a credit or debit card on account with autopay activated. But that's not always possible for a variety of cash flow reasons that can vary from person to person, circumstance to circumstance, and month to month. Twice this past month, I was subjected to the highly annoying practice of monthly service providers changing the due date on a bill. For one property, the local electric utility has been known to change the monthly due date from as early as the 6th up to the 22nd. And if you happen to pay a day late, they will hit you with roughly a $10 surcharge for every $100 of electricity. On another An ISP provider sends out their bills with sometimes less than two weeks to pay, after which they charge their customary late fee and will then disconnect you if you don't pay by a floating cutoff date after the short window due date. On top of that, they charge a $25 reconnect fee. I was traveling recently and missed the ISP short window due date and subsequently had the internet cut off. I called their office that day and ended up speaking to three different people. What I discovered is that internet cutoff day is a big day at that particular office. I'm guessing bonuses or lunch or dinner are part of the equation in that organization, because they were almost gleeful telling me how they never reversed those $25 reconnect fees. I was not amused. When I got off the phone with the senior manager ten minutes later, my internet was restored, and the reconnect fee was waived. I did, of course, pay that month's bill. Now, I have no issue with the ISP turning off the internet for a past-due bill, but be reasonable about it. Don't entrap consumers with floating due dates and ambiguous short-term cutoff dates, only so usurous reconnect fees can be charged. Technology today makes it easy to provide reminders and alerts that can become customer service opportunities instead of something altogether different. This incident reminded me of the various polls each year discussing how between four and six Americans out of every ten would have a hard time coming up with $500 for an emergency, let alone to pay a reconnect fee on their ISP that was designed to trip them up if they didn't stay on top of it perfectly each month. This type of nonsense by some organizations creates distrust and annoyance on the part of consumers, many of whom happen to also be voters. Incidents like these make it 
a little easier to understand why some voters embrace wild political ideas and even wilder candidates to save them from distrust and annoyance that has built up in countless ways. The practice of ambiguous floating due dates that result in unnecessary inconvenience may not seem like a serious problem. However, the distrust and annoyance factors that result from such policies can have untold ramifications and can become major drivers of political change, which often starts out as something completely unrelated and transforms itself into something unrecognizable that soon becomes something unrealistic, and potentially unstoppable. And until next time, this is Robert Ian with ConquerChange.com. Thanks, Chris. Okay, Robert, thanks for another excellent installment. Well, that wraps up this week's GoldSeek.com radio episode. For two new big guests, be sure to check out next week's show. Until we talk to you again, have a great week. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice.